Welcome everyone to the Liquidary Podcast, the place where we get to discuss everything crypto, markets, finance, and more. And don't forget to check out our website, liquidary.com, the one-stop shop for all the information you need about all your favorite crypto and traditional assets. Before we start, please note that all views expressed here are our own and do not represent the opinions of Autowheel GmbH and that this podcast is meant for information and entertainment only and is not financial advice. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much again for tuning in today. Um, we have a very interesting guest for you today. His name is Timothy Anaking, and um, he is the founder of Digital Capital Management, and he's also the manager of the first ever Bitcoin trading fund. So, Tim, a very warm welcome to you, and thanks a lot for taking the time to join us today. Sure. You're, you're welcome. A little bit of a clarification. I did manage the first uh, Bitcoin fund in the world. But it wasn't a trading fund. It was a bit of an index fund. This is way back when. This is you know early days, like in 13. And then I thought, well, this is kind of boring because it's just basically the index fund. And so then I set up the, a different fund, my own fund, which was, as far as I know, the world's first crypto trading fund. So a little bit of a clarification there, but it's also kind of an interesting story. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. That wasn't really um, clear for my research. So. Got it now. <laughs> okay. Um, we always like to start with, you know, um, getting a bit of a clearer picture and um, getting some background um, on you. So if you could tell us a bit about um, how you started out professionally um, and feel free to like go back um, in time. I mean, you don't have to start in kindergarten, but maybe as an aspiring <coughs> college student, you know, <laughs> um, why did you choose the field of finance? Because I think you have five different finance degrees, right? I have five university degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All of them are in international only. Well, let's, I mean, let me just run through them. I have the graduate, I have an undergrad degree in Soviet area studies. So things international back when the Soviet Union existed with a minor in computer science, which just as an indication of my inherent schizophrenia, I suppose. Ah. <laughs> then I got an MBA. Then I got a, a law degree with an era of focus on international business. Then I got an LLM, which is like a postdoctoral law degree, but uh, and also in international business, but much more, much more focused than that in that area without any of the peripheral stuff you always get. And my fifth and last degree. It's actually from the United States Army War College, and it is a master's degree in international security relations. Wow, that's quite the CV you got there. <laughs> and um, how did you um, how did you start? Like once you you finished all your degrees, or um, how how did that? What did that look like? Your your career? Oh, I didn't finish the degrees and then start my life. I did it all simultaneously. Every one of those degrees I earned while working. So on, on the one wow. hand, I've got about 20 years of experience in mergers and acquisitions and deals. Uh, on the other hand, I actually was in the Army active duty and reserves for 32 years and retired as a uh, lieutenant colonel. On the third hand, uh, I also have been doing asset management for about 15 years. I'm also a C-level coach and trainer, and I have almost 25 years experience doing that. So 
uh, as a friend of mine says, who's known me since I was, you know, known me about 40 years, let's put it that way. She says, I, I was multitasking before they invented the term. <laughs> yeah, and uh, by, you know, by what this sounds like, who needs a private life, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's impressive. I mean, wow. And I guess um, that's where your discipline comes from, is from the army, right? No, I was like that before I, I, I got into the got into the army it certainly helped but it it built very much on on the proclivities let's put it that way that I had going in and in the army I wasn't in an egghead or anything as airborne ranger french commando jumping out of jumping out of perfectly good airplanes <laughs> i once told somebody i have taken off in a helicopter 12 times i have only landed in a helicopter twice <laughs> nice one. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, what I'm also interested in is uh, how, when, and why did you actually enter the cryptocurrency space? You actually almost have the entire explanation. I was uh, a fund manager. I was based in, in Russia when the Soviet Union broke up. I went there because it's not often you get to see the world's largest empire break up. And while I was doing that, these guys who had set up a Bitcoin fund called The Bitcoin Fund, the first crypto fund in the world, they didn't have a lot of fund management experience, although they had set it up. So they asked me to manage it, and I did. And that's 2013. And so that was my intro to Bitcoin, which really was crypto at that point in time. And then I found it ridiculous when I first heard about it. Dumbest thing I ever heard. And the more I dug into it to try to see whether it was a Ponzi scheme or some sort of mania a la tulip mania or something, the more I realized, you know, this is actually legitimate. And it's as I told people using the example of Cyprus in 74, because the world went off the gold standard in 71. So the new Cypriot pound was the first currency created after the gold standard died. Used to tell, ask people, why is it that one million people parked on an island in the Eastern Mediterranean can come up with a currency backed by nothing, and a million people that are connected by the internet can't? And that was the that was sort of the logic that led me to believe that you know there's 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 a story here, there's something legit here. And after it after that finally got through pounded into my thick head, I decided you know I don't like this buy and hold thing, let me do a trading fund. And so I launched what, as far as I understand, is the world's first crypto trading fund. Gotcha, okay. that's, that's really something, Tim, I gotta tell you. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think like the first time, uh, like, like the first uh, asset you, you obviously um, got into was Bitcoin, um, but we actually met um, at, uh, Presearch, which is a decentralized search engine, um, and you're also an investor uh, in that project. So, what kind of got you into altcoins, um, and what's your approach to kind of also Bitcoin maximalism on the one hand and uh, diversifying into other assets uh, and other crypto assets, basically? Well, there are about five questions there, Thomas. Let's see. If, let me see if I can parse them out. <laughs> sure. Uh, with respect to Presearch. 
three years ago, CNBC Asia approached me. They wanted to do a piece on crypto and they wanted my recommendations in terms of what to invest in. And so I said, look, folks, this is a fairly broad field. Let me pick what I called at the time a large cap, a mid cap and a small cap. And I had read about a million projects and I, one of them was pre-search. I thought, I'd like this thing. So I dug in a little bit more. I had no contact with pre-search prior, prior to that. And then actually spoke with Colin Pape right before the CNBC broadcast just to try to get a feel that it was a legitimate project before I recommended it to you know, everybody who watches and listens to CNBC. And had a good conversation. So did the CNBC broadcast. That went well in general, but it was a real jump starter for pre-search. And, and that's what you know, Colin told me at the time. I, I didn't have a relationship with him particularly. And because of that, he asked me to become an advisor. So um, not sure if I was the first advisor or, or I was tied with Trey Granger, who now has joined as the, as the CTO. But we were um, you know, both very early um, in, in the project. And then the ICO started, the public portion of the ICO started. And to my embarrassment, they used my photo in this, and something that said like, as featured on CNBC for six weeks on top of CoinMarketCap as the banner ad. So every time I went, every time I went to CNBC, I saw my own face there, which was and this a was bit like uncomfortable, but I, I got it. Anyway, it seemed to have helped. Seemed to have helped a little bit in the in the ICO. It it but did because this was, actually, <laughs> this was actually the first time I saw pre-search uh, or I learned about pre-search, and this was while seeing your face on Coin Market Cap uh, on the top right. of Market Cap, basically. Well, good thing we're doing this without video because you'd see me embarrassed. If, uh, <laughs> if did. And in yeah. any event, the uh, the relationship grew from there. That was in seventeen, right? So the big heyday of ICOs and everything else. So we rode that up as well. That kind of answers your question as, a, as far as getting into alts. Then obviously the alt quality is generally improved and not nearly as many scams, although there certainly are still some. And our analysis and, and the level and detail we do is also now improved. So we still invest across the board uh, in my fund in, in various large mid and small caps, let's call them. The nomenclature has evolved a little bit in this very rapidly changing sector. But uh, my involvement with research has continued to this day. And uh, it's quite an interesting project, I think now on the cusp of, of a whole new phase. So I think, Thomas, I was able to address most of your questions. Forgive me if I missed one or two. Yeah, no, I think you pretty much went through all of them. Uh, thanks for that. So um, basically, uh, what I would be curious about is what your current portfolio structure looks like. Um, obviously, you hold pre-search or pre-tokens. Um, what else is your portfolio basically built off? We're dominant BTC now uh, because we have a lot of leverage in BTC. Uh, the uh, liquidity is a big issue for us because you know, we're not just an individual investor. So there's a bit of a limiting factor. You want to be able to get in and out without moving the market too much. 
As with any some... asset, which unfortunately not enough people have realized so far. <laughs> it's funny in the crypto, it's true obviously in, in any asset class, you know, globally, and always has been, it's it's a real it's a real problem with in the crypto space because there is often little liquidity and what little liquidity there is is often spread out over multiple exchanges some of which are suboptimal in terms of how they're operated so liquidity is a huge a huge issue after just uh, you know without going very deep down the cap table in the in the crypto space uh, it's a problem it's a problem for us or not so much a problem because we're not interested in selling but it's an issue for us even with pre-search because we're a decent size pre-search holder or pre-token holder and there's no way we could sell a significant percentage of the holdings quickly because we destroy the price right. so we it's something we're very aware of uh, we've never sold any pre my fund has never sold any pre so uh, you know we call well we courted in fact we've been acquiring our last acquisition was bought a little bit my management company bought a little bit last month and the last big acquisition we did was when the price went below a cent so in the, in my fund because i own some personally my management company owns some and my fund owns some so right uh, we, we are we're very aware of not just in pre-search and anything of what how much our how big our position is related to market liquidity yeah and i think that's an extremely important point that um, when you talk to projects out there and we've kind of realized that, that this kind of issue of liquidity and, uh, and the need for, for actual market making is pretty, uh, pretty, uh, like non-existent in the minds of, of founders, uh, to a certain degree. Often well, Mark, you know, market making is not a panacea. It isn't, but right, if you have a coin and you've got it listed on an exchange that's not very well known, basically, because you don't have the budget to go for a big one, uh, you kind of have to ensure yourself that there is some kind of liquidity, right? So Right, but, but let, me, let me tell you, market, when there's market making going on in a token, you can see it. I mean, show me a, show me a, a, a price chart, and I'll tell you whether there's a market maker involved or, of course. or not. Yeah, what, what I what token issuers really have to focus on is supply and demand, and everyone focuses on building supply, but not many people focus on demand. I still am an right. advisor to a number of projects. In fact, a new one approached me this morning, which is fascinating, and I usually say no, but to this one, I'm at least going to say yes to an initial uh, initial call. And my focus is always the same when I talk to people, and that is. Where's your demand going to come from? And people focus on supply because, hey, we get to sell, we get to raise money without selling equity, right? That's since, nine, since you know, 2016 and especially 17, that's been the mantra. It's great, it's great. We raise money and give nothing away effectively. Well, people have climbed the learning curve. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there so you can still sell your tokens that aren't really don't really have a good tokenomics, right? Don't really, don't really have any demand built in. But the biggest issue in the token space, especially if you want to get serious, is what is going to drive demand? And without at least, when you've got some demand, but pro say it's a little bit low, 
or lower than you'd like it to be, then market makers have, have something to work with, right? Market makers can't make something out of nothing. So if there's some demand and they're just amplifying it or building on it, beautiful. But if there's virtually no demand and you, get, you try to engage a market maker, they can't make something out of nothing, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that, absolutely. So if there is no demand, then obviously you're basically, yeah, you can't do, you can't create something out of nothing. That's absolutely right. Um, however, I see for, for quite some projects that there is some demand, especially now in the DeFi space. And, and for, for really um, a lot of those projects, it's really beneficial to have market maker in place. And what's also kind of, um, what this podcast also is a bit about is, our new site, we, which is called Liquidary, where we're going to rank um, tokens and coins based on, liquid, on, on liquidity, so that people kind of get an understanding and a feeling what, what actual liquidity means compared also to trade volume, which, yeah, as we know, often is fake. Uh, and, and some market makers try to sell you this kind of fake volume as market making, which makes no sense, right? So, um, Thomas, now you're changing this from an uh, an interview of me to an infomercial of your business. <laughs> right. I mean, kind of, yeah, you, you brought the topic uh, of liquidity up, so that's why I kind of jumped in there. But anyway. Sorry, you're the one who mentioned market making, just to be clear. <laughs> okay. Check the recording. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> um, so maybe let's go to another question um, about uh, Bitcoin maximalism. I think this is something that we haven't covered, like uh, in the previous uh, question that I asked. So um, you started out as a Bitcoin fund uh, or a Bitcoin trading fund. And what kind of uh, is your opinion on, on people claiming that Bitcoin is kind of the only uh, cryptocurrency that has a, a reason to exist, basically? It's, it's an interesting question. I don't like the word, the term cryptocurrency. Uh, actually, I don't like either piece of it because there aren't many uh, trading tokens, as I prefer, that would meet the criteria for a currency and crypto, you know, just from cryptographic, I mean, that really applies to any sort of secure financial transaction, including the, you know, the most boring done from in fiat currency from bank to bank. Uh, so I prefer trading tokens because I think it's just far more accurate, yeah. far more yeah. accurate term in terms of having a, a, a right to exist. It's funny, uh, the evolution I went through when I first heard about cryptocurrencies or first heard about Bitcoin was, you know, I'm, I'm not sure this will survive. And then I thought, okay, a couple, you know, years or so later, I'm sure it'll survive. I'm not sure how big it's going to be. And probably, you know, in set running into 17, it's like, okay, this is going to be fairly, fairly large, but is it going to be big enough to determine to be called a separate financial sector. And it's still not clear that it is at 200 some billion or 300 some now billion dollars. You know, there are lots of individual funds out there that are far bigger than the entire trading token space. Right. So uh, I think eventually perhaps more because of blockchain than trading tokens themselves, what we call the crypto space, I, I think is going to split into, is splitting or even has split into three. And there's an article I published on Coindesk about a year and a half ago on the 
crypto trichotomy, the three directions it's splitting, but I, I won't repeat all of that, all of that here. But I think the, the, what used to be the, called the crypto space, I think will grow into a, a big enough space, although not really a single sector to be important, to be significant. And as far as a currency is concerned, historically there have been three criteria for a currency, right? Medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account. I would add a fourth to that, and that is a mechanism of transferring wealth, which is different from a unit of exchange, although it's, it's similar. Uh, and that makes, it's one of the reasons gold is really not a currency. It, it meets the first three, but it doesn't really meet the fourth because it's hard to move around. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, meets all of those. It clearly can be moved around. It's clearly a storage of wealth. It's not a unit of account. And it's a very, very, very limited unit of exchange. So I, I'm not sure BTC, I'm not sure Bitcoin qualifies as a currency. And if Bitcoin doesn't, pretty much nothing else does either. Um, and there are four categories of, of property that could possibly cover what, you know, using your term cryptocurrencies. One is a generic property, one is a security, one is a commodity, and one is a currency. And it's clearly property, right? It's clearly generic that. It, they're probably currencies for a little while during their introduction which is why you have the, the U.S. has finally introduced this 12-month rule and some other stuff, although the U.S. legal regime is not very good for it. There are much better ones in, in Western Europe and certain countries in Asia. Uh, I don't think it's a commodity, although some countries uh, uh, call it that. Um, in terms of being legitimate, though, to get to the last piece of your question, you know, the, to some degree, it's the greater fool theory, right? It's legitimate as long as there's a seller and a willing buyer. And there are, there are a lot of naive buyers out there, I suspect. But as long as there are buyers and sellers, as far as I'm concerned, it's legitimate. No matter how ridiculous another party to the, you know, a third party to that exchange might think. So now you have a drawing by Paris Hilton that got sold for $17,000 worth of ETH. I wouldn't spend $17,000 worth of ETH on some scribbling by Paris Hilton, but hey, someone was willing to do that. And it's a legitimate transaction. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's, that's pretty crazy, but that, I mean, that's just the world we live in, right? Um, I would like to go back to what we discussed earlier, if you don't mind. Um, could you maybe share a bit about how you choose which altcoins um, to, to invest in or, or to choose for, for your funds? Um, I'd love to say that we have you know, a team of 20 analysts to look at the whole range of thousands of altcoins out there, but they're just too, there are just too many. So we have you know, a certain we focus on. Uh, we have a, a couple of great analysts here who really do a lot of TA now, a lot of technical analysis, and move around from coin to coin. On the fundamental side, we also, we also trade very much on fundamentals. Pre-search would be an excellent example of that because we think the project is good. 
but you, there are just so many projects you can't possibly do a fundamental analysis on all of them. You can't even do a TA on all of them, but TA is a bit easier because you don't have to do so much due diligence or rather private due diligence. It's all publicly available information. So in very general terms at a high level, that's the approach we take. I see. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There are just too many altcoins out there. And sometimes you you realize pretty quickly um, what's a legit project and what isn't. I remember once I read a, a white paper and on the first page it said proof of stake written S-T-E-A-K. So, yeah. And it, it, it wasn't about the meat industry. So that was very... <laughs> <laughs> that was, that Maybe was it was a deliberate pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so, but no, it wasn't. Right. And um, yeah, but how does it or does it um, differ from the way you choose um, other traditional assets, for example? Conceptually, not at all. Uh, and I wrote, I wrote an article uh, uh, called The Seven Pillars Stealing from T.H. Lawrence, right? Lawrence of Arabia with his seven pillars of wisdom. I wrote an article in Coindesk on the seven pillars of ICO investing. The general principles for investing in any sector are identical. That's, and that's easy to say, and it's, it's easy to defend, although some people don't like the, the sound of it. But it, it's absolutely true. The specific application, though, uh, can vary. But for instance, in a, in a traditional M&A project, you do a, a technical due diligence, whatever business it's in, right? You do a management due diligence or the people involved. You do finance. You do legal. You, you just look at the major sectors. Uh, if you're looking at an ICO and you're really looking at it, you're going to look at every one of those sectors as well. Now, some people, they really don't have the information organized in a fashion to even be able to address those questions, in which case you're left with uh, you know, a fork. You either drop your due diligence standards and invest, or you say no to the project. Uh, then, and we often say no to a project just because they don't have, the, they've not even asked themselves the questions, or projects where the, the founders or major participants are anonymous, right? If there's, ever, if there's any warnings, ever a warning sign, that's it. So the, the overall criteria are identical. The specific application varies, particularly because a lot of the projects are decentralized. But if they don't, the, the application doesn't vary as much. Let me say even the application doesn't vary as much or isn't as, di as much different from investing in the fiat space as many crypto maximalists would like to think. Right, and I think to, to that it would be quite, quite interesting for people to, to understand how you, how you value, um, uh, I, I actually like the term crypto assets more than cryptocurrencies, so just as a clarification for, for the question for that. Um, so, what kind of uh, metrics and methodologies you're applying for for valuing a crypto per, uh, crypto asset, and kind of like like you know there there is always the price and, and the value and what what kind of indicators and methods are you using to say this and that asset is basically undervalued right now and um, how are your decisions there? The issue of or the problem of valuing trading tokens 
is one that's not been solved. The right. It's it's very difficult. Let's take pre-search as an example. It's a wonderful example. The the company behind pre-search is owned wholly owned by one guy. And he's made a commitment to move it into a foundation as soon as the, the company is viable. And as a reason, and the reason for that, and, and hopefully the result of that, is that all the value of pre-search will go into the tokens. Now, contrast that to say BAT, B-A-T, basic attention token, the browser. There, BAT, the company, has taken PE, private equity money investment, to expand. And it obviously has a token, which is historically done quite well. So there you have value going into both the company, because the private investment firm didn't invest to lose money. And you have value in the token. It's being bought and sold. You know, our, see our discussion earlier on supply and demand. So there's supply, there's certainly supply and there's definitely demand for it. What's the percentage allocation of the value of, of basic attention token between equity and tokens? And while we're talking about that, let's ask ourselves, what is the overall value of basic attention token of that, the project? Much less, is it 50-50, 60-40? Who's, you know, where's the value going? There's some major open issues as far as determining, not even determining value, coming up with a way to determine the value. And this is the biggest reason why a lot of fiat investors say, ah, there's nothing here. It's, it's not, you know, there's, there, there's no value here. People are making it up. But if you ask those fiat investors, they'll say, oh, well, it's PE ratio that determines what a, a stock is worth. Well, P stands for price, but in my, from my perspective, it could also stand for psychology. And I don't say that because I'm a crypto guy. I'm saying that because that's what it is. Earnings are solid. Here's what the company earned. But price is a function of market psychology, period. And so the difference between crypto and fiat is more one of what I call historical financial inertia than anything else. Over time, people have realized, all right, about a 50, about a 20, 20 year or 20 PE ratio works. It's a little bit less than that in some markets, a little bit more in others. Let's just use 20, it's an easy number. And that just means because the psychology of people, they're willing to look about 20 years out for earnings or 10 years out with lots of growth, or I'm simplifying radically here, but it doesn't matter. Over time, a PE ratio sort of settled in. If it's a PE ratio of 40, oh my God, it's wildly overvalued. But if everybody thought 40 was reasonable, the, the, the stock prices would shift. With respect to trading tokens, there hasn't been enough time for, th it's three years for most tokens. There hasn't been enough time for the, the, a price earnings ratio or a psychology earnings ratio to evolve. And so people, when they're making trading decisions, so everybody's going to technical analysis now because there really isn't anything else that you can use without, because there's not as much of the fundamental information available. And even if there is, people aren't sure where exactly that's gonna drive the token price. 
And is it the company that's going to increase in value? So the shares in the company, is it the tokens that are going to increase in value? Or is it, which is usually the right answer, a combination? And if, and if that's the case, then what percentage goes here and there? And so the, it's not clear at all what the, what the right answer is. And frankly, I'm not even sure people are asking all of the questions yet. So it'll probably take a couple more years as more traditional finance guys get involved and more of a track record is developed. And so people will be able to accurately really value tokens. And that's a super long and to some extent a complex answer, but we're not there yet. Right. And like you mentioned, technical analysis. So, and you're also part of the trading desk at DCM. So what are technicals, uh, what technicals you're looking at in terms of indicators and um, how do you see the market right now? I mean, we had Bitcoin going from the COVID crash from 3,000 up to like 12,000 something um, and, and all coins basically rallying like crazy in terms of uh, Ethereum and DeFi projects. Um, so what technicals do you look at and what do they tell you right now? it would be hard to list all the technicals we right. look at you know everything from rsi to clouds to various price formations uh, to btc dominance to all sorts of different ratios i mean there one of the things about the, the this market is that the the market fundamentally changes about every 18 months because the players change. So at the beginning it was libertarians and 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 really computer fanatics that were involved. Then it involved uh, early adopters. Then it got a little bit more serious. Then suddenly retail investors piled in and drove BTC to 20,000. And then recently more institutions, although not many and, and not very seriously because the entire space is too damn small um, but some institutions have gotten in so as players as the players change the market has changed and so your technical indicators also have to evolve any in your trading decisions also have to well also have to involve so evolve so and we definitely have i mean the way we're looking at the market now with the, the ta is very different from it was from what it was, say in '17, and you know you don't have to go back that far, but there's a huge, huge difference. Uh, so where do I think the market is? The market is going now. It's interesting. I, I published quite a bit, so you'll you'll see an article in CoinDesk again on what the what the average time has been from peak to trough, so from high to low. And then the average time to get back to the prior peak from that trough. And then the time to go 2x that prior peak. And the numbers are, I won't go through all of them. There aren't a lot of data points because I only took drops of 80% or more, which is a pretty frightening drop. But we've had four of them now. And one of the things that's become clear is that, is that it takes a while for the inertia to get wound up to go from trough to prior peak. 
and the, the range of time there is quite large and it's getting longer and now it looks like it'll be about three years this time. But what's been very steady is from prior peak to 2x prior peak. And it's really the two laws of inertia, right? Inertia of rest, inertia of motion. If something's moving, it's hard to slow it down. If something stopped, it's hard to get it to go. And so what's happening, what we've seen here is, you know, we hit 3,000, hit very close to it again with uh, the coronavirus crash in March, which is a bit of an anomaly, but still it happened. And so it's taken a long time to break back up, right? 10,000 had a huge amount of resistance. 6,000 looked like it was gonna be a bottom, but the bottom fell out because it's bouncing off of 6,000. 10,000 was a top for a long time because it's bouncing going up off of 10, aside from a couple of anomalous, crazy 42% jumps in one day up to 14. Finally, we broke through it. And so now we're sort of bouncing off 12, same thing, but we're clearly in a bull market. We're clearly moving up. We will clearly take out 20,000, maybe before the end of this year, but if not then by Q1. And then hang on because my prediction is within six months after hitting 20, BTC will take out 40. And dominance during that period of time probably will, will probably rise, not hugely. It's not gonna go over 70. Uh, I doubt it's going to get much more, much below 55 at the moment, but it'll go up. Uh, not hugely, only because everything else is going to sail in Bitcoin's wake, right? It's going to, Bitcoin's break and trail, and everything else is going to rise behind it. Sometimes with independent factors like ETH and DeFi, although I think DeFi is really horribly overrated in terms of of how much attention it's getting and what the what some of the token prices are doing. There's there's going to be a reckoning in, in DeFi. Right. But that can happen independent of a bull move or a continued bull move in BTC. So I've got a lot of thoughts on that as I'm sure most people do. There's a really short version for you. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with what you said. So um there, there was in 2017 the narrative of ICOs, and ICOs drove the ETH and the BTC price up to 20K and 1.5, 4K for, for, for ETH. Um, and you mentioned DeFi now, and you're not a big fan of it, uh, or at least for, in terms of the prices and the kind of crazy things that are going on there. Um, what you kind of see is the narrative for for next uh, Bitcoin bull run. Will it be DeFi? And, and if not, what, what, what other kind of narratives are you seeing? Well, DeFi, I don't think really directly affects uh, Bitcoin, except that it, it makes Bitcoin a bit less liquid for some people if they've, if they've committed it on a DeFi product. But aside from what I just said, I'm not really sure what you're looking for in terms of narrative. Could you be more specific? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, in terms of narrative, I mean, like in 2017 with ICOs, um, basically, people had to buy uh, Bitcoin uh, in order to kind of invest in ICOs. So that's at least the narrative is that people bought Bitcoin because they needed to get into ICOs and that's why the Bitcoin price went up, right? Uh, so that's what, what kind of the story is about uh, the, the 2017 hype cycle. Um, what kind of do you see there as the next big thing, uh, quote unquote, uh, for, for 2020 or 2021 uh, uh, for the Bitcoin run? Well, I, I think 
Uh, along those lines, and I'm not sure I agree completely with the 17 narrative, but I, I understand. Me neither, but, but just say you um, mean, that general belief is there. Yeah, you mean now, I think the, the, the easiest way and, and, and the most intriguing one, and certainly not the only factor that's driving Bitcoin, I, I mentioned two. One is inflation. And that is, it's very funny with quantitative easing after the 2008, 2009 crisis, we saw no inflation. It's pretty nuts when you consider how much fiat currency was printed throughout the world. And literally it was fiat. Fiat means by, by diktat, right? Uh, the a ruler says the currency exists and has value, therefore it does. And that's literally what we saw happening like never before in human history. And, I'm, and I mean that, never before in human history has so much currency been created out of nothing. Yet inflation didn't go up. Uh, investment assets went up. That's what soaked up a lot of the money and, and cash on hand went up a lot because a lot of people were sitting on it. But inflation didn't go up. Now with the coronavirus, you have quantitative easing or currency printing, using the old word, that in a couple of months totally dwarfs the entire QE one, two, QE infinity of the 2008 crisis, eight, nine crisis, crisis and what came afterwards. So there is going to be an inflation cycle. Uh, there, there has to be, there are some indications of it now, but with the dollar as the reserve currency and trillions of dollars being conjured up out of thin air, and I don't mean to disparage what the Federal Reserve is doing. I don't think it has a lot of choice. I think it's doing what it has to do, but that has consequences. And the consequence will be the dollar dropping in value, which you've already seen. This has been one of the worst years in history for the dollar in terms of dropping in value. And it's not been a big drop, right? Currencies don't move that much, but it's still been, a, uh, by historical standards, it's been massive. And so that's driving the value of commodities in particular up because commodities are priced uh, by and large in US dollars. So you've got gold that just crossed the 2000 threshold. Bitcoin isn't perceived by the masses as a, ha as a haven, uh, as a investment haven, at least not yet, but it is by some, by some people and to some degree. And that, so, so inflation should drive the price of Bitcoin up. Even if Bitcoin doesn't change from say a purchasing power parity standpoint, in other words, it'll still take one Bitcoin to, you know, to buy this model car or something or two Bitcoin. Inflation goes, inflation goes nuts. The Bitcoin price goes nuts. It'll still take that same one or two Bitcoin to buy that same model car, but the nominal value in US dollars will be much higher. And, and that happens to, to all commodities. That ha virtually has to happen here because there's no way you can dump all this money into the financial system and not have inflation pick up. And more and more fiat investors are talking about gold in that regard. The best example is Warren Buffett, who said basically investing in gold is stupid, and now he's investing in gold. Now, it took 20 years for his opinion to change, but Warren Buffett also said investing in Bitcoin is stupid. Um, he's, he's an older fellow now, so I don't think he's probably going to live long enough to change his mind, but more and more traditional financial investors, and you've seen them recently, all kinds of people are coming out with, you know, Paul, from Paul Tudor Jones to Portnoy and others are coming out with recommendations, hey, buy Bitcoin. And then there was this major fund 
that just put $250 million uh, into, uh, into BTC. And that got companies like BlackRock invested seriously into BTC. Why? Because it's got a finite number. You can't issue more by fiat or in any other way. And the value, the, the currency that's usually denominated in the US dollar is losing its value. And there is just no way the price can't go up. So that's the one factor. That doesn't send the price through the roof, but it gives you a very, very nice price trajectory. The second factor, and there are a bunch of others, but the second one that I'll mention is let's call it the Robin Hoodization of crypto, right? One of the reasons why equities markets are going nuts, particularly in the US, is because private investors, individuals who are already much more active in the US than in any major country in the world, any other OECD country, they're really piling into Robinhood because they're taking what savings they can and dumping it in as they see equity prices go up. And there's stupid, stupid things happen with major companies like Kodak, for instance, which at least used to be a major company, went up 600% when it won a government contract. And it fell 400% when there was a, an investigation announced as intra, insider trading into Kodak. So it's crazy what's going on. That is not that mindset, the retail entry into BTC, and there is some of that that happened in 17, has not happened yet in BTC or has not happened at all in BTC, certainly not in this cycle. But if retail or when retail investors start coming into crypto, combined with the fact that it'll be viewed as a safe haven, non-inflationary asset, when inflation starts to kick in, I mean, hang on, you're looking at, you know, the 20 will fall easily, the 40 definitely, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, inertia will bring it that far. But there are some people calling, and it's, you know, it's, it's easy to call for a five-figure Bitcoin price, but, and, I, and I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow, but I think it will happen eventually because of the two trends I mentioned. There's, there, there is just no way that the price of BTC, with a lot of other uh, tokens following in its wake, cannot increase significantly over short, medium, and long terms. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's interesting also what, what you said before, um, because I, it's, it's almost hilarious to me that there's this, still this kind of hypocrisy going on, right? Because on the one hand, most um, traditional asset managers and whatever um, still say, you know, Bitcoin is, is a scam or at least that it's not gonna work. But then, like you said, you have companies like BlackRock investing and I'd say once you have those guys um, spending their money on it, I mean, you know, that, that says something. Actions, you know, speak louder than words in this case, I think. Um, but what I want to ask you is, because a, a lot of people these days um, have been expecting um, a crash of uh, traditional markets, um, even before the whole um, global pandemic that's going on right now. So what, what is your take on this? How do you think that this will affect the, um, the traditional markets and then also maybe the, the, the crypto space? Sorry, what is this in that question? The corona crisis, <laughs> the pandemic. Oh, the, the corona, what we've seen, it, it, it's more the reaction to it that, that is, has caused uh, issues. 
it's actually quite amazing, except for the United States, which has just had the world's most botched reaction to the coronavirus, thanks to our, the unique uh, nature of the current presidency, is it, it's been actually quite, quite good, but it's been fractured. And so, because we haven't had global leadership, which is usually something that the United States, you know, rightly or wrongly, has assumed, and the U.S. has now abandoned that sort of, that leadership role. And it's almost too bad because, I think it is too bad because it, it, certainly U.S. leadership historically had a, had a lot of issues, but at least someone was leading, right? You at least had some, some framework to, to deal with. And you don't, uh, you don't now, so everybody's going it on their own. And frankly, I think the re reaction has been quite good. But let's face it, we're gonna come up, you know, man, there are billions, hundreds of billions of dollars chasing this. Some of the best and, best and brightest medical minds in the world are focusing on, on developing a vaccine. We'll get a vaccine for the coronavirus. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. And people, when they were running for the exits, it was like, what are you guys talking about? This is, this is something that is, it, it'll get solved. Um, the, 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 the issue is not so much that is how much lasting damage, if any, will be done to the financial system. And the problem there is with all this quantitative easing, this insane quantitative easing, I mean, write down $1 trillion and try to imagine it, you can't. By rights, all of that money should be sucked back out of the system to put the fiat financial system back on steady footing. Uh, at one point in time, after the 8-9 crisis, quantitative QE1, I thought, okay, maybe that'll happen. Now I no longer think it will be. The Fed balance sheet has gone from $1 trillion in the U.S. to like six, and it's probably going to get bigger. And I don't think it'll ever come down significantly, which means equity markets, securities markets, financial markets in general are going to be dependent on this cheap money. And I'm not calling for a collapse tomorrow but it can't go on forever. You, you've, got to, you've got to suck that liquidity back out of the market. And there are a lot of tools that central banks have and they'll come up with more tools. And the last thing they want is a massive crisis, a massive crash. They'll do anything they can to avoid that. You'll have governments buying stocks and bonds. They're already doing some of that now, which is pretty frightening when you think about it. They'll buy massively to support, uh, support the markets. And they'll be able to do it. They'll be successful in that. But what happens when you do that is you'll devalue the currency. And that will, particularly against other currencies where countries aren't doing that, but mainly it, it turns into something that's super inflationary. So against that sort of background, I'm not a chicken little here. I don't think the world economic system is going to collapse. But it's certainly weakening and being weakened now and something with a finite supply and a decent market like Bitcoin in particular, that's really attractive under those circumstances. I mean, for the last five or six years when I was running, <coughs> been running crypto funds, I've told people, again, there's a Coindesk article, actually I know it's a Forbes article, where I'm quoted, it says, you're an idiot if you invest too much in crypto, but you're an idiot if you invest nothing in crypto. And so I've said as a minimum, you should put one to 2% of everyone should put one to 2% of their portfolio in crypto. And sure enough, when Paul Tudor Jones came out with his announcement several months ago, he said, 
everyone should have one to two percent of their portfolio in crypto. You know, I've been saying that for a very long period of time, and people are starting to other people have independently come to the same conclusion. And that makes a lot of sense. That one to two percent may grow over time as the fiat financial system weakens, but any reasonable investor, every reasonable investor should have part of their portfolio in crypto because of this weakening effect, because of the fragilization, if you will, of uh, fiat markets and the real debasement of every major currency on the planet. Again, I'm not criticizing what the, the federal banks did. I don't think they had a lot of choice, but that doesn't mean there aren't negative consequences of that. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other trades to make there, money to be made because of those consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think especially um, the, the inflation part and quantity easing, what you mentioned at some point, um, like when you, when you look at Zimbabwe or, or, or Venezuela, like when at some point you, you print so much money, like I think until that point in America, they have printed more money than the, during uh, the 2008 crisis. Uh, at some point when you have to inflate the currency and have to print more money, you're going to probably end up uh, having to redo the same thing and kind of get addicted to that. Uh, and I think like yesterday or a couple of days ago, there was an article or a, a press release coming out from the Fed that's saying like uh, they want to move away and they're, they're, it's no problem moving away from the 2% inflation mark, which in my opinion is quite frightening. Um, I guess we agree on that. Um, but I think you're, you're on quite, uh, quite a tight schedule. So I, I think we will round this episode up here. Um, and but let me say, let me say sure. one thing. Sure. I wanted to ask you for what you compared, you compared what's going on to Zimbabwe or Venezuela. I would never do that. Um, those are way, way, way out on the other end of the, of the spectrum. Of course. And, and certainly established currencies may you know, may are moving a little bit in that direction but they're taking one step on a thousand mile journey to the the hyperinflation that's plagued uh, Zimbabwe for a decade and that's plagued Venezuela for you know five years yes it's in that direction but it's just a slight little bit in that direction uh, and and I, I don't want I don't want anyone to think that I'm I'm comparing what might happen in in any OECD country to those two countries in particular. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just for clarification, I also didn't uh, intend like to do that. But just saying that, as you said, also that the direction that they are they are going is basically uh, increasing inflation and therefore uh, devaluing currencies and this hurts the, the, especially the lower, lower class people because they don't have the money to buy stocks or, or, or Bitcoin or, or commodities or other asset classes, right? And that's the, those, are the, those are the folks that people don't have a lot of savings or work in service industries that have been directly and adversely affected by coronavirus. Right. Those are the people that I, I really truly feel sorry for because they're suffering irrevocable damage. It'll take years, decades, if ever, for them to recover. And then I really feel sorry for the children in those families because they are being, it just makes you want to cry. And that's where I think the United States is really hurting itself in terms of 
a lack of a comprehensive program to address that exact income level. Because it's a, it's a shame. I mean, I run a, the other hat I wear is I run a family office and trust. And it's doing quite well because, you know, we invest in financial instruments that are being, frankly, artificially propped up by all the quantitative easing. <laughs> well, we're not the people that should be helped, right? The people that should be helped are the waiters and waitresses and right. state workers and drivers and everything else. And there, there's something upside down about uh, the policies that have been followed a bit in most, if not all, OECD countries, but especially in the United States. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, so I think, is there anything less you want to add in terms of uh, yourself? Where can people go and kind of follow you, follow uh, digital capital management? And is there anything you want to... to Thomas, say? that's too general a question. Let me just say we we're probably out of time and it's been a pleasure, but it's time to stop. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, like, you, they can go to your website, I guess. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's what I wanted to ask. All right. Then I thank everybody for, for, for listening. I uh, thank especially you, Timothy, for, for joining our podcast today. And I hope to see you all guys soon. And take care. Absolutely. You too, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in and don't forget to check out liquidary.com to get all the information about all your favorite assets. Please also check out all of our social media channels and if you've liked this podcast, consider sharing it with a friend. Talk to you soon and so long. Have a bullish day.